All right, welcome to the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernick, and my special guest this week is Dan Noonan. Dan, how you doing? Doing good, Jim. Thank you for having me on the program. It is an honor and privilege. I know I've talked to you now. It's It's been probably a good six or seven months now that we've been equated. So uh been on a different call with you, but to have you on my show, it's going to be pretty cool. Thank you much. So I'm going to just jump right into it, Dan. You're you know, retired FDNY firefighter, but you were an active uh, FDNY firefighter back on February 27th, 1975. If you don't mind, just kind of go into that night because, uh, you know, typical day, but that night uh, was anything but typical. Well, um, Jim, I was uh, kind of a, a new firefighter. I had like two years on the department what we refer to as on the job. And I was assigned out of the academy, which we call the Rock, um, to Ladder Company 3, which is located on East 13th Street in Manhattan. And it was an exciting night for me before any of this happened because I was finally assigned a position in a truck company known as the Irons position. And that's part of a forcible entry team. We have our outside vent, we have our roof position, and then we have the interior forcible entry team, which is the officer, a firefighter who has the irons, what we call the Halligan, eight pound flat end axe, et cetera, and a firefighter with the extinguisher and a six foot pike pole. So I finally got the irons that night after so many years on the camp. And when you grow in the FDNY, you certainly you elevate to different positions on the truck company. So that night, my tail is wagging. I got the irons, right? So I guess it was a little bit after midnight, about 25 minutes past midnight. And I had what's known as the watch. All FDNY firefighters have a watch, an area, a desk in the front of the firehouse. Whereas if a civilian comes running up and knocks on the door, firefighters, there's a fire down the block, somebody's there to take the information and to turn the companies out. So that was my assignment at midnight. And I'm sitting there doing my due diligence and uh, the voice alarm comes in and I can barely make it out. It's all scratchy, it's all gobbled. But what I could decipher was Ladder Company 3, Respond, 2nd Avenue and East 13th Street, the New York Telephone Exchange. So I got that part of it out in what we call a box number, box 465. So I was able to turn the whole house out. Everybody goes on this. We were a single ladder company, and we also had a battalion in the 6th Battalion. So the phone company exchange is literally down the block from us. We're on 13th and 3rd, and they're on 2nd and 3rd. So we pull up, and Engine Company 5 is already on scene. They're returning from the false alarm. This is way back in the day, Jim. This is 1975. And we, we were really rocking on the FDNY. We called the Warriors nonstop structural fires. All day, all night, endless runs. So many jobs, they just like blend into each other on the tour. So as we arrive on scene, the officer emphasizes, everybody make sure your mask is turned on, make sure you have your SCBAs, it's full functional. We pull up to the structure. It's 11 story structure and the place is built like a fortress. It's built to be riot proof, earthquake proof. And on the first two floors, they had these windows that had wire inside the glass. They were on steel frames and then they had steel cages around them because they were very apprehensive about the vandals who went through the neighborhood back in the day. So the place is locked up. It looks like a, a prison. But we see these phone company employees staggering out and everybody's like confused. What's going on? What's happening? What's... 
So as first to truck company, it's our assignment to identify the seat of the fire and to check for possible victims who are trapped. So the way we go about this is we go into the lobby and we meet a building foreman from the phone company. He's got the white shirt, the tie. He brings us over to a display panel. And on that display panel, he says, this indicates we have a fire down in the subcellar vaults down here. And it's all the way downstairs. And we're like, yikes, you know, but this is our mission. This is our task. We have to find the seat of the fire and see if there's anybody trapped in between there. So we looked and we, uh, they brought us over. This is the staircase. So the officer, the uh, firefighter on the extinguisher, myself, and one fellow from the phone fire uh, staff, from the phone company staff. Down we go, floor to floor to floor. Now, as we get lower and lower, the smoke gets more intense. There's these long tiled hallways. And on top of the hallway is fluorescent lights. Now the smoke is gathering on the top of these lights. It's giving off like an eerie dim glow and the, the alarms are going off, the fire alarms. And they sound like klaxons, like a submarine dive. Uh, uh, uh. So we're going deeper and deeper. Finally, the phone company employee, it's down there, it's down there on the left. He takes off. So we approach a door. There's danger, high voltage. So my officer tells me, uh, Dan, leave the Halligan. Leave the Halligan to steel, steel bar. Down we go. We open that door, and there's another set of short steel, steel steps. And engine company five is behind us, lying the initial attack line. I believe it was an inch and three quarter in those days. So they're stretching behind us, farthest, length after length after length. They must empty the bed. So down we go, and now it's getting thicker and thicker and thicker, where it became zero visibility. We can't see one another. Can't see the ceiling. Can't see in front of us. We're looking in the ceiling for fire. We find none. I'm carrying a powerful flashlight I kept on me. And I'm like, son of a bitch, there's a lot of time to stop working. Banging it already. Then I held it directly on my base piece. And then I could see the beam of light out of it. So where we have no ventilation down there. There's no vertical ventilation. There's no horizontal ventilation. And there's no secondary means of egress. Your way in is your way out. It isn't like, oh, there's a side door here that's going to open up. No, we're in the sub-cellars now. Things start to get worse. The polyethylene that was coating the cables was starting to melt and it's dripping on the floor. And now our boots are starting to adhere to it. So it's difficult moving around. And the offices, to make their transmissions, had to remove their face piece. And I'm like, good God, they must be taking a real hit here on this. So they're back and forth to the battalion. And now this operation, Jim, is 15 minutes into this and we're starting our air and starting to get low. I said, all right, we can't find the fire. The line's here. We can't. All right, let's start backing out. As we're backing out, going up the staircase, the firefighters from like 33 engine, 14 engine, 55 engine, all these other companies sent to relieve us were becoming entangled on this one staircase. Also, when we tried to find the staircase, we are following the line back to the staircase, but the line had moved from the staircase and now just went up a vertical wall. So we were very fortunate 
to find that staircase that we came down because the line is off. Anyway, there's so many bells ringing that you cannot distinguish whether it's your SCBA or not. So you have to remove your glove and feel your bell to see if it's yours going or not, indicating, hey, pal, you only got four minutes more of oxygen left. So there was a very sharp uh, lieutenant from Rescue Company 1 who rolled in and he took the roof rope and he tied it off in the lobby and brought it all the way down to the subcellar vaults. So this fortuitously gave us a method to follow back up the stairs and back to the lobby. And trying to get back to the lobby, some of the firefighters have run out of air. And this is really rough stuff. Unlike anything we've ever encountered before. So we're buddy breathing with other firefighters, sharing our mask. And we hit the lobby on what a mess. Boy, we're on all fours. Gasping for air, puking, gagging, etc., uh, etc. Et and all the relief starts coming in and they start deploying more and more firefighters. And initially it was told to us that there's two telephone employees missing. So they dispatched truck companies to search the upper floors. And of course it was a mix up. They're already out of the building. There was 25 certain, 25 employees who incidentally told us later that they were on different floors of the building and they started to smell the smoke. And I said, well, what's up? And they, they tried to call the alarm in, but the phones were dead. And this was happening on multiple floors. So they, they had the sense enough to gather in the lobby. And the security guard in the lobby is noticing that the lights in the lobby are going on and off. And all the clocks on the walls have stopped. So he picks up his phone to call 911 and his phone is silent. So he screams to a fellow employee, for the love of God, we have a serious fire, get the fire. So he runs to the corner and does the pull box, brings the pull box. And that brings us to, uh, to the scene. So it gets nastier and nastier and nastier. The PVC is burning inside these vertical cables. PVC is coating the cable. And it turns out there was over a billion feet of this. Now, Jim, for years and years and decades in the fire service, we fought conventional fires. We, we fought wood burning fire, maybe cotton, certain fabrics. But this, a new day is dawning for us here. We have all these different chemicals. So the alarms progress to where we have 35 engines and 19 trucks, all by heavy rescue companies operating simultaneously. So the fire goes worse and worse and they evacuate everybody out of the building. They try again, they get uh, all the forces together. They're gonna do a line on each floor with a ladder company and a battalion chief and they're gonna make a push. Well, they try again, that doesn't work. They evacuate everybody out of the building. But the smoke is so intense now, the whole neighborhood, the whole community is just like under siege. It's in 10 million cubic feet of toxic black smoke. You can't see, you can't move. People are laying all over the sidewalks now. Where like the firefighters went in, all right, evacuate the building, evacuate the building, everybody out. There's companies on the upper floors. So my former firehouse, ladder company nine, decides to take roof ropes and tie off the staircase in the lobby. Because as you descend in zero visibility in this toxic flu, 
you have no visibility, you can't see. So if you went past the lobby floor, you're gonna keep descending into these subcellars and probably certain death. So we tied off these ropes so you couldn't get past. Then you would identify that this is your exit point. So everybody makes it out of the building except this battalion chief and his aide. And he's trapped. They are trapped. So the chief of the department goes and tells this chief in charge of the operation, chief by the name of Augustus Beekman, to select one lieutenant and one firefighter from one of the heavy rescue companies and have them give it a shot. So they select a lieutenant from rescue company three, star by the name of uh, Lieutenant Maloney. They call him Iron Mike Maloney. And he selects this fellow uh, firefighter, Eddie Guile, was later say was the most proudest moment of his career when he was selected to go into destruction search for this chief. So they go in, they follow lines that have been making, and they find him. Unbelievable, they find him up by a window on another floor. So they call for an aerial platform, which we call tower ladders. And they bring him to the window and they put the chief and his aide in that tower ladder. And now there's five firefighters in here and it's way overweight. So they send it on its way. And he says, where exit down the interior staircase? Once again, zero visibility. Another line opens from another aerial platform, a high pressure line goes through the window, hits firefighter Guile on the side of his head, knocks him ass over tea kettle, he goes tumbling down the staircase and he's unconscious. So Lieutenant Maloney, you know, remarkable display of heroism starts pulling and dragging this firefighter out of the building. Eventually when they hit the first floor, those that were surrounding the building could see through the smoke, these silhouettes coming through, through the smoke and they rushed them off to Bellevue Hospital unconscious. And um, if I can add a little note here, um, Lieutenant Maloney never went sick from the phone fire. And uh, a week or so later, back up in a routine strip mall fire in the South Bronx, a heavy heat and they push out to the sidewalk and on the sidewalk, he drops to his knees and um, they rush him off to local hospital and, um, and he, he, he dies. And uh, but what was very interesting was his autopsy. They opened him up and saw that his lungs were just completely deteriorated and the pleural side of his lungs just eaten through with this hydrochloric acid with all these multiple, multiple burning chemicals that we had there. And this guy was 46 years old, you know, a couple of daughters I met later on. And however, he was classified line of duty from the strip mall fire and the, the farm fire. Anyway, back, back to the fire, um, safety battalion identifies that there's a moving crack on the east wall. It's like 10 hours into the operation, maybe 12. So they're fearful that this 11 story structure is gonna collapse out to all these buildings, which we call tenements, six-story tenements that have 25 families in each one. So they get the NYPD along with us. We want to vacate all this. They're taking a hell of a feed in there. The smoke is just completely, completely wrapped around these buildings, but nobody wants to go because they're fearful they're going to be ripped off their apartments that they're going to be ripped off. So eventually, the smoke gets so bad, they start running out of these buildings, holding towels over their mouth, barefoot, coughing in the towels. And we, we were concerned about the children, the toddlers and the babies and people whose 
those young folks whose respiratory tract was not fully developed. And it's getting so bad, us trying to continue to extinguish this, where they're doing everything possible. Um, when firefighters come out of the structure, there was um, an abandoned bodega which sells fruit and everything else. It was one of the fellas from 55 Engine, he had a knife and they had a big tray of lemons and he was wiping off this black soot. We didn't even know, we, we weren't conscious of what this black soot was, cutting the lemons in half and we would squeeze it, squeeze the lemon juice down our throat just to get any type of relief from this, whatever the hell it was, whatever it was. So eventually 239 of us, 239 ended up with 699 of us at this fire. The smoke gets so heavy, it's going across the East River to Queens. Seven blocks away, we have what's known as the FDR Drive, which goes around Manhattan. The smoke is so thick at noon, motorists got to put their headlights on to drive through it. People up in helicopters reporting this say it, it, it looks like a, a movie set. It just goes all the way across the river. It's, it's permeating the city. It's all over the city. So we have 239 of us. And in error, with what we call tapping out, means going sick at a fire. It really wasn't done back in the war years, or done, you know, very infrequently because they really frowned on it, and your lieutenant would have to make these reports, if not report to the division, et cetera, et cetera. So they frowned, but we had 239. There should have been 500 of us tapped out. So Everybody, they close all the local hospitals. The, uh, the Red Cross sets up in a YMCA. The high schools are closed till further notice. Oh, I went to, the mayor arrives on scene in his limousine, gets out, he takes one hit of this. One hit of this gets back into the limo and he's gone. He's gone. You couldn't get within hundreds of yards of the structure. So we have firefighters vomiting on all fours, sucking for air, and we didn't know what the hell it was, Jim. And then it turns out it's PVC. It's PVC by a billion feet of it. And the chemical composition of this PVC is a witch's brew. And it starts getting into our lungs. It starts, uh, firefighters are just like completely wiped out. Um, weeks go by, it's the middle of winter. And people say, oh, maybe I have the flu. Maybe I have, no, what it is, it's the poison. It's this poison that's been poured into our lungs. And I remember, you know, uh, wives uh, saying, I can't believe when my husband came home from that fire, the smell on his flesh, he, he couldn't get it off. He scrubbed shower after shower, couldn't get it off. I believe it was the hydrochloric acid that would just get into your tissue and melt into your tissue. Well, finally, after 17 hours, it goes under control. Uh, so now the phones start to go. The 911 system, call in for an emergency, that goes silent. Let's do it. Now, block after block after block, all the phones start to go silent. It's up to 300 square blocks in densely occupied Manhattan. And this includes all of these what we refer to as housing projects, uh, dozens of these all over, or the local university, NYU, just all the businesses. It turns out there's 8,500 businesses 
that are impacted by this cannot communicate with their suppliers, their purveyors. Because pre-email, Jim, everything was done mostly via telephone. So now it's having a significant economic impact. It's going to be felt nationally and then eventually globally. So all the phones are out. All the phones are out in the first division, which is all uh, numerous firehouses, all the police precincts. So it's turning into a mess. So the phone folks, AT&T says what we're gonna do, we're bringing in thousands of workers from across the country. It doesn't matter if you're in Ohio, Illinois, Los Angeles, where you came in, they pulled everybody in from every direction. Now they still have this smoldering toxic pile that that is just burning in the middle of the city. And they send these guys in, they got to get the phone service back in operation because of all these consequences. And uh, the CWA, Communication Workers of America, their union, they reach out to the government and the government says, oh, they do, yeah, it's safe, air is safe. So I, I think we've heard that one before, you know? So uh, in they go, and they dangle the overtime problem. At least when we went in, we had self-contained breathing apparatus, we had our bunker gear, we had this, they sent them in in overalls. They didn't even have uh, proper breathing. So they got hit by the thousands. And then as time went on, uh, my reward for this and other firefighters, this was February 27th, um, June 30th, the city gave me a pink slip. Me and uh, started as 1,800 other firefighters. I believe at that time we have 12,700 on the FDN1. They laid off 1,800 of us, brought 900 back, uh, over 2,500 NYPD was laid off. Say, so lay, lay me off for over a year and a half. This is, uh, thanks for doing such a good job. But all of a sudden, I'm getting phone calls. Danny, you know, got real sick. This guy, the guy from my house, the guy who worked that night. Wow. So I, uh, no kidding. And then another phone call. You know who's sick now? The other guy who was second to engine company. He's got this cancer too. What do you mean? Oh, this guy from Rescue One is cancer. Oh, well. Primarily the first and second alarm assignments, it's going off the hook with these first responders coming down with these crazy cancers that we never heard of. He's got what a brain thing, what calling, what, what, what? Phone call after phone call, Jim, every time I pick up the phone, it's Danny. Danny, guess who died? Guess who died? Inevitably, it's it's a fellow firefighter from the phone company fire. So we start going to City Hall saying, look at this, look at this. And then the folks who, uh, who work at our medical bureau, they were saying, we're seeing an extremely high incidence of cancer right here. These are young, athletic men. These are, the, the guy in my house was, was on the football team. The other guy on the other company's a box. I mean, these are all in shape firefighters. So they begin to recognize this. So they decide our medical monitoring is gonna be this. They took a stamp of a red star and they took the medical folders of all 699 of us and stamped the outside with this big red stamp. And this was the only thing. This was the only thing. So this identifies you. So the, the people who are working in the medical bureau start to refer to this stamp as the red star of death. You have one of these, it's like, oh my God, this guy's 44. So in the first 15 years or so, we're saying, what? We had 20 something guys at the average age of 44.2. This is it's remarkable, but 
were banging on the door of City Hall in the hierarchy and nobody's answering. Nobody's answering. They don't want to know about this. They don't want to know about it. It's, it's what if we put out a couple hundred firefighters on line of duty, do you know what they would cost the city to bring in classes in the academy? Hundreds of new firefighters? No way. It's, it's well, you know, uh, uh, we don't know. Nobody's answering. Nobody's recognizing what's going on. And for the longest time, we're banging and banging and banging on the goddamn door. Sorry. Say goodbye. Kiss the boys. Uh, uh, nice job, fellas, but this cancer, we don't want to know. We don't want to know. Uh, in 99, I went to the commissioner, uh, was commissioner of Arnes, and then I went without an appointment. I, he worked the same battalion I did when I worked in the South Bronx. And he saw me and he says, I agree. We need a survey. We need this. So he put one guy on the case. I find out it was one guy going for his master's. And uh, he did a survey, but instead of going to 699 of us, he only went to the 239 that went sick in the street. And half those guys didn't get it. The other half, they said, oh, the city's going to try to show there was a lot of mistrust. And nothing developed over that, but and then 9-11 came. And when 9-11 hit, I, uh, I told him, after losing 343 fireflies, I said, Commissioner, make this 344 on your agenda. You know, we, uh... But slightly after 9-11, some very distinguished people from our medical bureau, 72 hours later, they demanded to see the mayor, the chief of staff, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, do you recall the fire at the phone exchange, 75? And they're like, we do. How could I forget? I, we had no phones in the office. We don't know. They said, we cannot allow what happened to them to happen to 9-11 first responders. We need a medical monitoring system that's gotta be the gold standard. And very fortunately, they agreed. They agreed, they said it should be. And they developed this absolutely gold standard out of this. And so out of the ashes of this toxic pile, where there were 700 of us who suffered significant cancers through the years, passed early, they, out of this ash became this fantastic medical monitoring system. So that's where we are. And what I've been advocating for at the 40th year anniversary, the, uh, the commissioner uh, worked that night of the farm fire. He was a young firefighter, as I was. And he got relocated to a company which was in close proximity to the building. And they were running all night through the community. Everybody calling, there's smoke, there's smoke. He was eager to take it in, as we said. And uh, he said to his veteran lieutenant, um, hey, this is the big one. This is the big one. Let's, let's, Lieutenant, can we take this in? And he looked up and said, maybe not this one, kid. He knew, he knew. So on the 40th anniversary, we get together at Nine Metro. But since that date, I, along with others still around, have been advocating, Jim, for some kind of remembrance. There's nothing. I, we wrote for, have a ribbon, have a ribbon made for your uniform. I said, this would be great to give to the sons and the daughters and the children of the firefighters are there, if not at this stage, maybe even the grandchildren. Look at the courage your father or your grandfather demonstrated on this night, because many consider pre 9-11, that the fire at the New York Telephone Exchange 
was the most deadly and costliest in the history of the FDNY. If, if you don't mind, I have a very short three sentences from uh, a fellow by the name of John Hart, who became our chief of department. He stated, right, pre 9-11, of course, 9-11 is we worship, that's, that's the top of the arrow. As it relates to the injuries, duration and damage, it was the worst fire in the department's modern history. If we had to fight the telephone fire today, we go about it much more cautiously. And if it was demonstrated that the smoke was hazardous to the firefighters, I would hold them out of the building. So, Jim, there's nothing. There's nothing for the 700 FDNY guys, nothing for the 5,000 communication workers, nothing for the people of the community who that smoke must have got into the fabric of their, of their living quarters and they, they had to live with this. And the consequences of that is, who knows? So I've been asking for a street sign. Here in the city of New York, we have these street signs below. For instance, I live on East 91st Street. And I live on the same block. This is where this old time actor, Jimmy Cagney, so underneath this street, it has Jimmy Cagney Place. And a few blocks away from me, it's King Gustav of Norway. And we have hundreds of these throughout the city recognizing our 9-11 folks. So I, I've been petitioning folks that why can't we have on the corner of that building, phone fire firefighters way simply, or have a plaque on, on the structure. Say, you know, very interesting about the structure, right? As I speak to you today, when I get off the air here, say, say uh, if you're in the city, I was to meet you. If we went to that building this afternoon and we stood there, I point to the North Wall. And this is what, one of the largest exchanges in the country. And above all the windows, after 40 something years of New York winters and hurricanes, it's still all black charred all the way up, all the way up from where it pushed out the windows for days. And I'm saying, can you imagine if you ingested that? Imagine if that got into your system, what this does, what this, you know, and Back in those days, Jim, we went back to quarters with all the gear, still, oh, I had all the, all the junk all over it. It was all, all, all over the rakes. I mean, our, our rake had to spend 30, 40 hours with the stick up right to the windows, right in front of the structure. Just the rig alone, over our gear, all the brothers and sisters getting exposed to this. It's 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 horrific and we continue the consequences of this with no recognition so that's so much to unpack dan <laughs> that's tremendous um i'm not even sure where to start um 699 firefighters it, it seems like it sounds like those 699 kind of fell on the sword for the benefit of your 9-11 first responders. I haven't quite looked at it that way, but I guess, but every one of those firefighters in their heart and soul, they would be like, if, if I, if it took this for all my brother and sister firefighters, not only in New York City, not only in the tri-state area, but everybody who responded across the nation, if it took me getting beat up here in order for them to get 75 years of health care for their 9-11 exposure, you know, they'd all be there. You know, we think about 
for 9-11, we think about the 343. That's the number that is etched into our minds. But knowing the exposures, knowing the latency period, how long it takes to show up, you know, a lot of times 10, 15, 20 years down the road, we know that that number of actual line of duty deaths is much, much more than that. And it's, it's still a line of duty death, even though they may have died of their boots off. And I have to, it's exactly the same thing for everything that happened back on February 27th. 1975. Jim, they were, excuse me, City Hall of the opinion that, well, nobody died at the fire. But that's, that's a misnomer. That, that's, that's not, we came close, as close as you can possibly do in a working fire situation on multiple floors with multiple people from multiple companies as close as you get, and then the sicknesses came. And it wasn't from secondhand smoke, I can tell you this. It's, uh, it, it continues to, uh, you know, Jim, since, since 9-11, what are we up to? 255 FDNY firefighters who have died from 9-11 related cancers. And the phone fire, is the, it's akin it's akin, it's the same exposures to these deadly cancer-causing carcinogens. It's the same. It's the same, but there's, there's zero, zero recognition. When, when my diagnosis came, when I was diagnosed with leukemia, and I wanted to make sure that it was from the phone fire, this before 9-11, I went to these notable medical centers, UCLA School of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, where they did an in-depth work on me, and they listed all the chemicals from the foam, from the burning PVC, and chlorinated dioxins, the most deadly carcinogen known to man. We're taking the feed of this, and they said beyond, uh, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, my leukemia is a result. And then I did the same thing with the Mount Sinai School uh, here in New York City. Um, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's the forget about it, the, the, the kiss off. The, uh, but we want to let the firefighters, the first responders, not only nationally, but globally, the consequences of exposure and how, how cancer has impacted this first responder community and how we have to be aware of this continuously. We can't, you know, um, when I was on the job in my 20s and 30s, I had the balls of a lion, you know what I mean? You're, you're, uh, you're Superman, you're, you're, you have a cape, you know, but. You can't have that attitude now. You you need you need a hierarchy, you need a command structure, and everything to identify what we're up against now. These these plastics, these polymers that are fused together, and what they give off, we don't know, and how it impacts your flesh, how it it impacts your body. The way it impacts me, it could be five years. You, it could be fifteen years. Who knows? But for the sake of your family, for the sake of your brother and sister firefighters, for, for, for the sake of all of us, you, you gotta be vigilant. Vigilant is the word. Very well, very nicely said, Dan. Uh, you have to always talk about the big picture and everything you're doing now could catch up to you later on. Is one part of me? Everything that you're doing now could catch up to you later on. Oh, yes. There you go. Yes. Yeah. So. For sure. You know, you retired from the job, landed in San Diego for a while. 9-11 happens. You come back home. You work the pile. You know, years later, you still, you get diagnosed with throat cancer. Um you've done so much and you continue to do so much, you know, for your, 
your fellow firefighters in FDNY and, and beyond. And, you know, it's got to be disheartening knowing how expendable you've been to them and, and your fellow firefighters over the years. It is, but, you know, on, on one hand, <clears throat> um, I see what happened at the farm fire and the lack of care. And then I see on 9-11 healthcare, they, they caught my, um, my throat cancer early. I had multiple sir, et cetera, but we got it early. We got it early before it advanced to stage three, stage four, stage, you know, the, the surgeons at Sloan Kettering said, oh, if you let this go, you know, it could have been a golf ball. You know, it's early, early detection. So I've seen both sides of the coin. I've seen the kiss off. And I've seen dedicated folks, our medical bureau, our team so dedicated, these RNs and they, oh, they dedicate their lives into us. Everybody's so into it with recognition, which is the way it should be. But on our side, can't even get a plaque. Nobody wants to know. 5,000 workers, thousands from the community, 699 FDNY. Uh, so early detection, Jim, right? It's a good segue, Dan. Kid? Check. Okay, check now. There you go, Leonard. No. You know, you've been involved in this uh, FACES, the Firefighter Against Cancer and Exposures, yes, now sir. for a little bit. Do you want to kind of touch on what they do? Uh, they, um, I, I think we hit the nail on the head right there where it's get checked now, early exposure. Uh, New York Cancer Rely, it's, we're all there and we're all pushing, we're all singing the same song that you got to drop the cape. You got to drop the superhero. You got to, there was some, um, uh, I saw a video where these uh, volunteer firefighters who, my late brother was volunteer firefighter on Long Island for quite some time. And uh, they, they came back from a job and they took a pail of clear water, clear water, completely clear. And they took off their face piece and they just dropped it in there and let it settle. And all this filament that just started to come up, it was remarkable. They're like, whoa, this is a, a new face piece. This wasn't something that was worn through the warrior. This is a new face piece and we're coming back from one job and look what's around it. So, Consider that gets, you know, we're covered up pretty much. I also, uh, well, I don't know if we have time for it, but um, I'm not a great advocate to be completely encapsulated because if you're in the interior in a fire situation, you always want to monitor what's going on around you. If we have so much gear on, are we going to identify that it's going to light up? Are we going to recognize that? No, but by, you know, by arguments in the firehouse kitchen, uh, people would rather have the tips of their ears exposed. So it's going to say the hallway is going to light. We got to get out. We got to. Um, so it's two schools of thought there. But, and then come back, clean your gear. And uh, you got to follow your, 20, your 25 steps. We, we have to follow. We got to do better. Uh, I believe the stats from the IAFF, right, International Association of Firefighters, tell us that since 2002 to 2019, that some 68% of what they define as line of duty, that's all cancer related. This is huge. This is why I said before, this is a more than caught than this. We're in a new genre. We, we in the phone fire, we pull back this curtain the red devil that we knew for years and years, that flame of the red devil, it's, it's taken on a new look. It's taken on a new look. It's, it, it's coming to us as, uh, 
as a devil that's cloaked, that's cloaked in this black cape of cancer that wants to throw itself over you. We have to fight the red devil in a new way. We've been attacking him with, with our hose lines, with everything for perhaps centuries. We have to attack that red devil because cancer is now the red devil's ally. So it's on a two front, two front. Pencil movement on this. You gotta be proactive and try to reduce your exposure. And then on top of that, you need to be as aggressive as you can with your early detection with all your, your cancer screenings with your skin, skin exams, your physicals. And, you know, cause the odds, like you just said, the IFF numbers, the odds aren't good for us. So staying on top of those exams, if you catch something early, you're still here. You're still hey. here. I'm still here. Yep. Cause early detection. Yes, sir. So mm -hmm. I don't know a better way to, uh, to finish this off. Um, I know I'll be in town in September, um, for Redmond and, uh, you know, I'll want to see the usual sites, you know, central park, radio city, all, all that stuff. But, you know, I want to make a trip too. I want to check out second and East 13th street. Please do so. Yes. I'm going to. So with that, he's Dan Noonan. I'm Jim Bernica, and we are out of time. So take care. Thank you, sir.